Welcome to the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club Show presented by Honey Stinger. This is a podcast that will make you want to get outdoors and will give you some great ideas as a sport parent, athlete, or coach. Born in the beautiful mountain town of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, the Winter Sports Club was founded over a century ago and now serves a majority of kids in our community and has produced more Winter Olympians than any other club in North America. There are secrets and great stories to share as we play year-round in these mountains we call home. Our calling is to develop complete athletes on and off the mountain by cultivating a passion for the outdoors and a love of sports at all levels. Stay tuned to hear from Olympians, athletes of all ages, coaches, experts, and people who are doing amazing things to make an impact in our community and in their sport. everyone. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former professional triathlete who finally discovered the joys of skiing in my late 40s when I moved to Steamboat Springs with my family. We immediately discovered the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club, and it's become a huge part of our lives as my husband, Tim DeBoom, is a ski and bike coach, and my daughter, Wilder, has found happiness, friendship, and joy through skiing, jumping, riding, and more. I am thrilled to bring the positive energy of the Winter Sports Club to people all over the world. Thanks for listening. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club show. Today I get to hang out with Luke Brosterhouse. Did I say that right? Yes. Yep. Awesome. Um... Luke's a guy who spends a lot of his time pondering the matters of the mind, literally as the club's mindset performance coach. Luke, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right. So that's my podcast voice. Now I'm going to make it real. Okay. Okay. You ready? You ready to get real? So it actually, we're very real because it took us a long time to make this happen. (laughs) We kept like making appointments for this interview and then one of us would cancel or the other. Um, The first time we canceled, though, was because you were experiencing a very, like, unusual, I think, issue. I mean, I haven't heard of a lot of people going through this. You were like, "Ah, I don't think I can talk today. I'm having, I I think it's vertigo. Yeah, got vertigo. Like random vertigo. Random vertigo. Okay. This may or may not have much to do with what we're talking about today, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I think... um, it was some, I th- you know, the more I've read and learned about it, the more I've, you know, realized that it happens quite a lot to folks. The first time I'd ever had it. And um, it was sort of a weird combination of, um, you know, I blame it on the snow a little bit. There was a lot of skiing going on. There was actually a day prior to when I really, the symptoms kind of got really bad where I had skied quite a bit in the morning and it was very cloudy and um, so on and so forth. And so what happens is they, they say is basically you have these, crystals in your inner in your inner ear that send send signals to your brain that tell your brain kind of what's up and what's down well they apparently will fall out uh, randomly and they will fall out of the place where they're supposed to be and so wait we have like a finite number yeah. of crystals like i'm yeah. imagining someone harvesting people's <laughs> ears for like you crystal sales the black I mean, market you would think like we're a little bit more of an advanced species than crystals in the ear but Turns out there are crystals in the air that can fall out. And it's really a terrifying experience, actually. I mean, I had never experienced anything like it. It felt like, it felt like I was on a boat in the middle of the ocean and I was just seasick. And every time I would move, it would just, it would almost bring about nausea. Um, so I had that for two days, really bad. And that was the first day we were supposed to, to get together. Luckily, um, there's a lot of smart people in this world and they actually have vestibular physical therapists at UC Health that will perform these maneuvers that get the crystals back into the right place. And it's almost instantaneous relief. Um, but it lingered for a few days for me. But anyway, uh, knock on wood, it's uh, it's passed and uh, I'm doing a lot better now. So, Well, I mean, I think that that's a kind of maybe relevant because I actually experienced vertigo when I was skiing the other day. And it was snowing sideways and I couldn't see like really anything around me. And for a minute, I felt nauseous. I was like, oh, yeah. my God, I, I, I'm going to I can't go. It's been it's an, mental and physical. Yeah, it's been an incredibly gray winter. 
Um, and there's been a lot of really soupy days up on the mountain. So I'm up on the mountain a lot with Winter Sports Club. And then in the mornings when there's snow, I try to get up and ski just because that's why we live here. And I love skiing a lot, you know, like most people. So I think being exposed to that, like we really haven't seen the sun, you know, yesterday was the first day I can remember we've seen the sun in about three weeks. And before that, there was another three week stretch or so where it was really stormy. It felt like we were kind of living in a snow globe. Um, and that's not to sound woe is me by any means. The skiing has been fantastic as a result, but, um, I think it just sort of messed with my <laughs> inner process a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, but that being said, it was an interesting process. Um, you know, it's funny cause the second time we were going to meet, I was like, uh, it says it's going to be sunny on Thursday and I want to ski. And we moved here yes. to ski and you were like, we moved here to ski too. Let's do Friday. <laughs> well, guess what? It's sunny today too, but at some point we had to get this in. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think that's what makes Steamboat so unique. There is a clear prioritization of values among, you know, the majority of people live here in and around taking advantage of conditions. And I think everyone understands that that's a priority. And, um, you know, in in the real world, I kind of call it life outside of uh, the Yampa Valley. That just doesn't happen. Like you would never cancel a meeting for a powder day. You would never look ahead at the forecast and be like, I don't know if I can do it that morning. It might be a powder day. <laughs> so, the f- but in Steamboat, you do it because that's why you're here, and that's you know what gives you life and purpose in uh, life. Yeah, Hallelujah. Well, okay. Here's a personal question. So, when you, the doctor, I'm calling you a doctor, even though I don't think you're a doctor. You have your master's. Yeah, We're going to talk not about a doctor, that. Yeah. But it, like, you are an expert in this mindset, performance, mental strength, that kind of stuff. So when you, the doctor, get sick, how are you as being a patient? Like, were you able to go, no, I should be able to will myself through this because this is what I do as a career? Or were you able to just like reach out and find help? Yeah, not, I'm not a good patient. Um, luckily, my wife is incredibly, um, she just is very understanding and, and uh, you know, she was able to kind of cast aside her day and help me. I, I couldn't drive, you know, but I had to get to... UC Health to get this, you know, to, to start this process of, of getting this remedied. Um, and be, you know, it's interesting, like I think if vertigo is a, a thing where it's very debilitating and you get a sense of like, oh, if I, if you can't move, um, life is really challenging. Like it's, it's, it's hard, you know, and, and, and sort of the mindset piece of that is how do you kind of make peace with that? Um, so there was definitely a few, a few hours of like, okay, I've just got to kind of surrender to the fact that I've lost a couple days. Hopefully it remedies itself and I'll be, you know, better by next week. But, um, yeah, I find that relevant just from an injury standpoint too. I think there's a lot of, you know, we live in a town where a lot of people have a lot of injuries, um, just from years of athletic, you know, overuse injuries, neglect, not doing the right things. As we get older, it becomes more and more apparent to me that, you know, taking care of your body on a daily, weekly basis is probably the most important thing for your long-term mental health. If you're going to be an active person in a mountain community like this, like it's, you just can't not do the right things to recover and stretch and and all that stuff. Because when you, if you don't, you're going to get to a point where your body just stops doing what you want it to do. And that's really challenging for people. Yeah, you know, I call it the aging athlete syndrome. <laughs> you know, as we get older, we actually probably just take for granted the fact that we can run out the door from our computer, do our workout and run back and sit right back down in the chair and right. start tapping away again. Um, but what's what's really cool and what we're going to dig into here is the mental part behind all of this. And what I already like is, A, you're human. You go through this stuff, too. Um, and B, this is going to speak not only to the athletes, like right now you're involved, you know, with the winter sports club as part of their coaching staff, but also it's going to speak to the parents. And that is critical because let's face it, mostly it's parents listening. Um, but before we get to any of the good stuff, it's all good. Actually, I really want to learn how and why you got into this line of work. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. Um, I actually moved to Steamboat after college to coach at the Winter Sports Club uh, for a winter. 
which turned into three winters pretty quickly. Um, and through that process, um, was just became fascinated with sort of the mindset piece or the mental side, had a lot of questions, you know, as a young coach, you're always seeing these situations that involve athletes and parents and coaches that, you know, there's, there's an answer to, or there's some, there's some information out there that can kind of help you get through the process a little easier, but you don't know exactly where or what that information is. Right. So it's one thing to sort of, you know, coach the day to day. Well, what were you coaching? I coached Alpine. Um, and what age group? Uh, I coached, I started with, um, what are now U16s and then, um, um, worked with U14s and U12s as well. So that, and then, so I was doing that in the winter time. And then my, my primary background is in golf. Um, I played golf growing up competitively and, and, um, turned professional out of after college and taught golf in the summer. So I was teaching golf in the summer, coaching, ski racing in the winter. Um, and sort of out of both of those experiences, really just, I've always been interested in the mental side. Um, but really out of those two sort of practical experiences decided, you know, I'm going to do this long-term as a career. Like if I'm going to be a coach and if I'm going to be a teacher, then I want to understand a little bit more about what's going on, um, from the mental side. So that was where I got, um, uh, accepted the University of Utah's master's degree program in sports psychology and spent two years there, um, studying and, um, was fortunate enough to, you know, continue to stay in coaching and in teaching golf, um, right after that. So that's sort of my general background. So okay. So, um, this is really cool because for a lot of people, they go to school and that informs their career. And for you, it seemed almost like the opposite. Like you started dabbling in, you know, coaching of skiing, but also probably following a major passion and became a professional golfer, mm -hmm. which is a whole nother story. <laughs> we might have to <laughs> hear some, you know, stories from the road there. But um, as you went through that and you're working with kids, it sounds like you realize, well, there's this whole piece that if I became more of an expert in, I could help my kids more. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I, I just always saw myself as an athlete growing up as someone that struggled with the mental side. I always felt like I wasn't able to perform at my fullest potential. And that may or may not have been true, but that's just kind of always the sense I had. And I, you know, there was a personal side of, of, you know, going back to school too, was trying to understand that like, okay, what, what, what parts of my athletic career as a kid was I, you know, not understanding and could, where could I have been better? Um, Can so, I ask you? Sure. Do you feel like you hit your potential? No, I don't. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. I think for me, my primary focus growing up was golf. Um, and I did not hit my potential. I can tell you that for sure. But I can tell you now it's simply because I just didn't at the time think I was good enough. Right? I just didn't believe in myself. Um, and while I had some success and played at a, a high level, um, at that time, I definitely did not fulfill my potential. Now, I still like to compete a little bit. I don't compete anywhere near as much as I did when I was in my, you know, early thirties before kids or kind of right when my kids were young. Um, I do still play and compete a little bit. I definitely enjoy it a lot more now. I think that, um, I at times can play a lot more, I would say efficiently than I did when I was younger. Um, but it's just different. So, well, you know, it's funny. I, um, I also was a pro athlete. I did triathlons. We talked a little bit about this before we recorded. And um, I definitely didn't hit my potential either. But I don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Like I probably retired at my very peak of my athletic life at yeah. age 32. But I had a new passion and I was really excited about following that. And so I never looked back and said, oh, if only, yeah, you know, and I think so there's it, it, no matter how you slice it, 
a lot of people will probably feel like you did and maybe me where you feel like, oh, I never really quite hit the big one. Right. Right. But getting them to a place of feeling okay with that and knowing that it's just a part of their greater journey is really important. And I think that's part of the work you do now is helping people understand the perspective around the sport they do. Wow. Okay. One more quick foundation delay. So um, you mentioned kids. So at some point in your journey, you had family. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Let's talk about your kids. So yeah, I I met my wife here. She was a teacher at the, what was then the Lowell Weidman School is now the Steamboat Mountain School. So we um, got married here in Steamboat. We, she went to grad school as well. And then I went to grad school after she finished grad school. So we were gone from Steamboat for about four years, kind of doing that uh, journey. And then we traveled a little bit. Um, we have two kids, one's 14, one's 11. Um, they were both born here in Steamboat and both at the Motor Sports Club now. They're both in Nordic programs, um, and which is great. Um, and it's just fun to kind of watch their journey. And it's just a fascinating experience of sort of trying to reconcile, you know, all the theoretical information you read about with the practical application of parenting and parenting a kid who's interested in sport and you know their interest level varies from day to day and trying to understand like where their motivation is what they want to do and why they why are they doing it and um yeah it's it's a fascinating process well it is because you have your own kids as your guinea pigs (laughs) probably trying not to much to their chagrin yeah (laughs) But, you know, you mentioned earlier that you were coaching the U-12, 14, 16. I mean, that is when your mind is being shaped in sport. It is. It's when you start telling yourself truths about yourself or stories about yourself and who you are and who you want to be. And what's cool is the work you do helps people lay a foundation for longevity. Another thing that you mentioned earlier, like if your approach here and the approach of the club is that we create athletes for life. Right. Who love what they do, not just do it for a specific reason or goal. Right. So t- will you talk about what you do with the club? Sure. Yeah. So I've been in this role now for three years um, as the mindset performance coach. So I primarily work with the U16 and up groups across the board. Alpine, Nordic, snowboard, cross country, jumping, um, free ride, etc. And... I, we have created, or I have created an online program that the athletes have access to that has several, um, tools within sort of four distinct areas. So concentration and focus is the first area. Uh, imagery is the second area. Motivation is the third area. And then the fourth area we call flow. Um, and so we, Provide, I meet with those groups in the fall during dry land, um, sort of give an overview of how to use the program, where the tools are, what the tools are. Um, and then I float through the various groups throughout the winter. And oftentimes it's just going out into training and standing on the hill and maybe having a conversation with an athlete. A lot of the time it's conversation with coaches about athletes, um, and, and not specific athletes per se, but just sort of specific problems they may be dealing within a group of athletes, like how to increase motivation or, you know, this athlete just trains really well, but they're just not performing under in competition under stress. So um, it, it's a really, um, it's a unique job. It's one I really enjoy it um, in the sense that I do feel like it's providing some value that... Um, you know, I certainly would have benefited from as a 14, 15, 16-year-old athlete be having access to some of these ideas, concepts in terms of, you know, why am I experiencing so much anxiety leading up to a, a competition? Why am I feeling so much self-doubt? You know, why am I feeling so much, um, you know, regret when I don't perform well? Like, how do we, how do we kind of give athletes some tools that they can use to, to redirect and reframe their minds in, in, in those certain experiences. This is definitely resonating with me as well. You know, we work our muscles in our body, but I consider this like muscle memory for the brain, right? Yeah. It's like the mental toughness, the how to get through hard times. Um, what happens when you fail, when you yeah. fall, when whatever, and you're helping 
give kids tools that will transcend their experience with the club, which I love even more. Yeah, yeah, and oftentimes, you know, and, and that's that's exactly right. That's that's the way I look at it. Um, and oftentimes, sometimes it's just having that objective third party that's not their coach, that's not their parent, that maybe they can chat with, you know, on the hill. Like, hey, how's it going today? Hey, well, what's going on? Tell me about your race. What's coming up? What race do you have coming up? How's your training been going? And often those conversations will open up, you know, that athlete to maybe just talk about how they're feeling athletically and like what their fears are and what they're worried about. And that process alone has value. You know, whether or not they take anything, you know, from me and tangibly put it into practice, just that conversation sometimes can be helpful for athletes. Oh, I I totally agree. And, you know, I think the word that comes to mind is pressure. I remember being a young athlete. I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform because if I did well, I had more value Mm, as a human, basically. I mean, I didn't think that at the time, but now looking back, I mean, it's kind of obvious. It's what we do to ourselves. Yeah. And the whole, like, we feel so sick going into races and all the nerves and stuff because we, we want to have that top performance so badly. Right. How, what kind of tips do you give to kids or tips might be the wrong word, but strategies or tools to help them relieve some of that pressure? Such a good question. Um, so, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I find is that we, you know, you hit the nail on the head. We, we carry around a self-image of ourselves as an athlete. And oftentimes competitions and races are, they're, they're real validations or invalidations of that self-image. And when our performances don't meet our expectations for that self-image, we have pain, right? We experience pain. Um, and so it starts really with, with getting a good, clear picture of where we are. And I think most athletes have an image that's related to that one performance they had that one time right? That might be 5% of their athletic history. When in reality, like if you look at the other 95% of the time that they've competed, they're kind of maybe right here. Let's say they're in the top 15, right? But that one time they were in the top five. So in their minds, they're a top five skier, right? So it starts with getting a good, real objective sense of who you are as an athlete, right? And that's data. That's just putting data on paper, these are your finishes. This is who, this is how you're doing. This is what you're doing. Let's set some goals that are maybe a little bit beyond that, right? And then and find that data kind of strips the emotion out of competition. Yes. So that's sort of the starting point. Um, and then, you know, I think if there's a main focus of the the program we've developed and and the work that I try to do, it's really getting athletes and young athletes, particularly to move towards that mastery mindset, towards that growth mindset, towards that, hey, this is a process. This is going to take some time. I'm not going to, I don't, I don't have it yet. Right. Um, and that's a hard thing to do with adolescents because their brains are in a place developmentally that's the opposite, right? They're, it's a constant sort of, where do I rank? Where do I stack up? You know, what do my peers think of me? Um, so trying to, trying to combat that with, some real tools to focus them on that growth mindset, that mastery orientation, that process, right? That And then that purpose, like, why am I doing this? Those resonance pieces too. That's that's really the focus of what I try to do. I, and this is so cool too, because even going back to the very beginning of setting the foundation, as parents, we constantly want our kids to feel like they're amazing. So we might be stoking the fire that they're a top five athlete. Because that one time they did it, but that's not necessarily helping them because there is it's important to be based in reality. Right. Right. But what through doing sports and athletics, we're trying to do is create more confident human beings. So that's an interesting line to tell. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's natural as a parent. And I find myself, you know, every day, like, you know praising performance, right? Whether it's grades or whether it's, uh, you know, a steamboat cup, you know, the first kind of question that comes to mind is like, well, what was the, what was the objective rank? Like how, 
how did you finish, right? And it's really hard, I think, to balance that as a parent to to focus on process and effort and and not because kids are smart. They're gonna see through, you know, you just saying, Hey, good effort, great, you know, great, great job today. <laughs> um they know you care about the result. They care about the result. So it's just having that honest conversation. I think that the thing I try to um, emphasize, and my wife and I talk about this a lot, is how do you have the conversation without comparing to other kids? You know, how do you have the conversation about results without comparing to someone that you know your kid has been in the past or can be, but didn't be today, or had a great day, or whatever it might be? Because I think that is the piece that kids listen to pretty closely when we point out other kids' successes. They think to themselves, oh, well, that's my, my parent must value that. So they pointed that out, right? So I think that's a hard one. That's a nuance that's tough. And I don't have that one figured out by any means, but it's one that is a, has a big impact on that adolescent mind. Yeah. I mean, definitely the comparison game is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And social media makes it even worse. Right. And, you know, a lot of sports, you can literally compare yourself to the clock. And somewhat you can do that in skiing, but courses are always different. Wind is always different and whatnot. You can tell yourself, I can't control what that other person's going to do so they could have the best day of their life. And I could too, but I might feel like I sucked right. because they still beat me. Right. Right. So all like, it is tough. And I love that you are here as an anchor for this. Earlier, you mentioned what I'm calling the big four, your foundational kind of process here. Mm-hmm. Concentration and deep focus. And then you move into imagery. Then you get to motivation. And finally, you get to flow. Is Can you nutshell these different uh, foundation pieces? Yeah, I think, um, you know, and this is just... Uh, my personal approach to this over years of doing it. And um, there's a lot of different ways of going about, you know, helping athletes train mindset performance or mindset toughness. And there's a lot of different pieces that aren't in the program that I use um, that could be, but I think just trying to distill it down into a digestible, um, easy to use platform, uh, I kind of arrived at those four. And my general feeling, I kind of have a couple of sayings that the kids probably think are, you know, they get tired of me saying, but my sort of general thing is like flow follows focus, right? So if we're, if we're trying to get into a place to perform our best for, for most of us, that that's a place where we are deeply focused. We're not distracted. Um, we may feel nerves without question, but we have a way of calming our mind and calming our body so that we can focus and we can focus on the right cues that our coaches want us to focus on that allow us to perform our best, right? Um, so that's that's sort of the, the general overview. Within, within uh, concentration and focus, you get into imagery and how the brain learns. And I think there's a, there's a really good foundation at the club among the coaches around um, creating the right environments. And, and this has to do with how the brain learns most appropriately. I think the club is fantastic at this. You know, those coaches create external cue-based environments that, you know, are not these big, long, wordy descriptions of how to do stuff necessarily. They're just tasks that they create with the environment. And so we do have some discussions around that and and the idea of kind of what cues are best when. Um, and then you know, the last piece, the motivation piece, that, that's a piece I really feel pretty passionately about. And one that I spent a lot of time in grad school, um, my sort of mentor professor in grad school was an expert in motivation. So I just spent a lot of time listening to her and, and trying to understand this piece of it, because I think this is the, that's the biggest piece. And, and it's the one that I think ultimately is what we're trying to do is create lifelong athletes and lifelong learners, right? And that's motivations at the heart of that. You know, why we do what we do, right? So trying to get athletes to balance in their minds, outcome goals, process goals with resonance goals. That's sort of the the piece that we look at. Outcome goals are so dominant. You know, everyone knows what they want and everyone knows what they think other people want from them, right? And sometimes that's even worse. Um, if we can, there's a great, there's nothing wrong with having those goals, whether it's making the US ski team or 
qualifying for junior world or whatever it might be, but balancing it with how am I going to do that? What are the steps? What are the process goals that are within my control that I need to focus on on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis to get myself in a position to where those outcome goals are possible? Well, it reminds me almost of micro goals. You know, like you, in order to make the big goal, there are a lot of little steps you can take. Right. And um, it's interesting too, like you, you mentioned focus. There's a book you, you told me about prior to our interview called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, is that how you say it? Right. And um, I literally only had the opportunity to look at the very beginning of it, but I just feel like there's such an epidemic of kids who can't focus anymore. Yeah. So if you can't focus, you can't think about who you are and what you want to get to the greater underlying, you know, value system you're going after to set goals, to go after them, you right. know, to find your va- your motivation. Um so talk to me a little bit about focus and what what you suggest to kids and parents right. to help all of us. <laughs> including me and you, you know, find that focus that the world around us is trying so desperately to take from us. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, focus is an interesting um, concept. And I started thinking about this a couple of years ago when I first started in this role at the club. The one thing I found was that um, there were widely varying levels or abilities of concentration and focus among athletes at the club. And whether it was on a, a simple task or a worksheet or you know a 90 minute training block, you could see there was just a v- wide variety in people's attention span. And obviously, there's a lot of things within our environment nowadays that are capitalizing on dividing our attention, right? Being able to kind of take us away from one one thing into the next thing. So um, I've talked about this a lot with coaches and you know, they're saying it too, like, yeah, these kids, you know, some kids are into it, the whole 90 minute session. Some kids can only last like 20 minutes and then you get to a race and some kids can't stay connected to their cue for more than a few seconds. Right. And you think about a performance, it's really that deep commitment to, right. What am I trying to do? What's my intention for this? And then from there, attention can follow. Right. And if I can hold my attention, if I can stay committed to my attention, then I can perform. And that's kind of that deep focus and flow concept. So I stumbled across this book um, this summer, uh, Stolen Focus, which I think just really summarized nicely the problem. And, and the problem is that there's a lot of things in our world that have figured out how to take us from one thing to the next very rapidly, right? And sort of prey on the brain's you know, internal um, inner workings that almost kind of reward us to shift quickly from one thing to the next. And so obviously that's having an adverse effect on performance. If we agree that focus is important, which it is for athletics. So um, long story short, I, I think that I'll ask athletes a real simple question sometimes. Like, do you read at home? Uh, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And then my next question is, can you read for 15 minutes? Right. Can you read a book for 15 minutes? And I'm not asking them, like, I'm not going to judge them. I'm just curious, you know. Um, most of the time, the answer is no. You know, they, they, they've really, I think we've, we've gotten into a place where um, that ability to kind of sit, be still, focus on a task is, is kind of, it's rare. And I don't know what the future holds for, you know, our, our species. Maybe long term, we're going to adapt and evolve into a place where we can you know, we can focus while shifting between so many things. Maybe we're just in this place from an evolutionary standpoint where it's just kind of weird in between land. But I do believe that for an athlete to perform well, the ability to be still and to be comfortable being still is is important. And that's a skill that we can develop. So um, whether it's working on basic, you know, breathing exercises, concentration exercises, um, sitting and reading a book for 15 or 20 minutes. You know, those things build that neuroplasticity in the brain to be able to stay focused, right? To stay here. Um, this is sort of a very sad statement, actually, that 
when you ask kids, can you read for 15 minutes? Probably you could ask adults the same thing, and it might be the same answer that most of them would say, no, I can't read for 15 minutes straight. Well, I recently read some article that said it takes 20 minutes for you to get fully engaged and like extricate yourself from whatever else you were doing. 20 minutes to get into a task to get yourself fully focused. Yeah. So if you can't even <laughs> get there, you're never going to get to the fully focused part. Oh my gosh, your job is so hard and so necessary. Um, wow. Okay. So if you could tell a kid one thing to help his or her mental game, what would that be? Well, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about it a little bit already. I think the ability to um, stay committed to whatever goals an athlete might have is probably the number one thing, right? So defining realistic goals, defining process goals, and then also defining, I think the third part and the one that's not done enough is defining those purpose goals. Like, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do you like to be a ski racer? Why do you like to be a jumper? Outside of results, um, and then staying committed to that triad, kind of balancing those three things on a, on a weekly basis, I think is, is probably the most important thing an athlete can do. I think that sustains motivation. I think it um, orients athletes more towards that growth mindset, that mastery mindset. And it, and it provides them with a framework that they can rely on when things get challenging, when results don't come, right? When they don't match up with that self-image. That's probably the number one thing I think that that we can do. And I think that's relevant for all of us in whatever line of work we're in. You know, it's constantly just reevaluating those three things because it's really easy from a societal standpoint to get sucked into that outcome game. Yep. Repeat the three again. So outcome goals, kind of what I call the what's, what do you want to achieve? Um, Process goals, those are the hows, right? How are you going to make that happen? And then purpose goals or resonance goals, which are the whys, why you do what you do. And those are deeply personal. I mean, those are back to kind of what we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier about why we live here, right? It's tapping into those feelings that are hard to define. It is. And it's so important to, to at least go over them, try to figure it out for yourself. Um, two examples. On this show, I have interviewed various Olympians and elite athletes, one of which is Anne Battelle, and another one recently that just launched was Maddie Shafrick. And both of these women went through times when they burned out, when they thought they were done, when they really had some terrible results. And both of them found a way to rediscover joy in their sport. And then they came back. And they did it with a different kind of purpose again. And so it's that like coming back to the why yeah. in this case. And for a lot of athletes, we do it for fun at the beginning. Right. And then we lose sight of that. And right. often it takes some struggle to get back there. But it's so I love that you're having people think about this beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Define it. Predefine it. That's sort of, you know, that's sort of existentialism, right? It's sort of defining why you're doing something and that... Um, if you can do it beforehand, then you sort of keep everything in front of you. But if you just, you know, and I, and I see this in my own, with my own kids, like the races start coming, right? The competitions start coming and it's easy to kind of get sucked into like the logistics of performance, right? All right. We got to get to the start. All right. You got to get your stuff ready. All right. You know, what time do you go? You know, all these things. And you sometimes lose sight of why you're doing it, right? Like, okay, what are you out there to, to experience today? Like, there's nothing better than competition. Nothing better if you're in the right mindset. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worse than competition if you're in the wrong mindset. So it's sort of, you know, it's getting that subtle shift into like, I've done all this training. I'm prepared. Now I have the best people in my area around me. I'm in this amazing venue. I can get to go as fast as I possibly can. What's there, what's there not to like about that? How fun is that? It's like the positive fuels the positive. 
I was in the uh, jump locker room the other day and there was this really funny graph on the wall. And I think they put up like these little funny little symbols to the kids. But um, it said something like it was like a trajectory arm and it said how much it sucks. And it was like the arm was pretty steep. And then it said how much it sucks when you complain about it. And it was like five times steeper, (laughs) you know, like negative uh, propagates negative. Yeah. Positive propagates the positive. So I think that is that's all part of this process. Yeah. Is, um, OK, so as we're starting to wind down a little bit for all of the parents listening, if you could give a parent one piece of advice to support their kids mental game, what would that be? Well, I'll just you know offer a qualifier and disclaimer. I am certainly not the expert on parenting. Um from from my vantage point, one of the things I'll I'll share sort of a personal insight I have with my own kids. Um, I think it's pretty simple sometimes um, for them in terms of just the basic needs. Like I know this sounds very simple, but it's but it's sleep and nutrition. Um, I see such big swings with my kids when those two things get out of whack um, from a mental standpoint, and I think that you know. That's a, it's a, it's a very, sometimes it can be a tricky one to, to make sure you get right. But, um, in my house, I know we have a couple, you know, a couple rules that help. It's like, you know, no sugar after a certain amount of time, after eight o'clock, you know, no phones after eight o'clock. Um, and it's just eight hours of sleep, right? Those, those three things help quite a bit from a mental standpoint. And, and actually Johan Hari talks about this a lot in his, that book that, you know, nutrition is a, it's a huge part of our ability to focus and concentrate. I'm always interested in, you know, people that do nutrition professionally. I'm always interested in asking them, okay, what are the, what are the foods, you know, you can try to get kids to eat? Because my kids are like, well, at least my son is like, you know, chicken fingers and uh-huh. macaroni kind of guy. And it's like, that's not helping, but what can I get in there that would help, you know? You um, got to sneak it in. My kid is on what I call the cheese on white yeah, diet. Exactly. So anything white, add cheese to it, done. Yeah. Um. Oh, that's such great... Great advice. So just the basic stuff I think is key. And then I think beyond that, I think just always, you know, that, that, that orientation around values and why we're doing stuff. I think that's really important. Um, it's hard because there's so much time and there's so much, you know, resource that's put into our kids' activities. We Sometimes we downplay it, but at the end of the day, like there's, there's a lot of time and money that's put into these sports. And it's very hard sometimes not to seek a return on that, you know? And so how do you, how do you make peace with that? And sometimes the return isn't result, but you're like, okay, if I, if I invest in this time and money, my kids should be doing this stuff when they're 16, 17, 18. Right. And so they, you know, you, you kind of want to keep them in it. Right. Because you're like, well, I got to get something out of this. They got to be a skier when they're, you know, older. But it, the reality is if they, if they find joy in it and if they define for themselves why they like to do it, they're going to be a skier for life, right? That, that's at the end of the day. That's yes. what it comes down to. Yes. And we want to ski with our adult kids too. Right. <laughs> um, well, I think the club is, has an edge that most other clubs do not have by having you on board and helping kids with their mindset performance and what I like to call mental strength training, taking their brains to the gym. Um, as we wrap up here, I would love to hear your answer to the final question we ask every guest on the show. And that is, what's the greatest lesson you've learned through sport? Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty easy one for me to answer because it's, um, it's pretty simple. And that's just, um, I think just resilience, just just being able to have a pretty strong history of memories of overcoming challenges, right? I mean, you just have that in your back pocket, like stuff starts to not bother you as much. Um, and I think sport affords that. Just gives you those opportunities. Gives you those opportunities to fail. And that's that's what's so good about them. We got to embrace it all. That is so awesome. Luke, you are amazing. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Thanks for your time. Now let's go out there and, and get some 
kid's brain stronger. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> and now a quick break to hear from our show sponsor, Honey Stinger. Honey Stinger produces fuel for all levels of athletes using delicious honey and organic ingredients. Not only is honey rich in antioxidants, but it's also easily digested and absorbed quickly into the system to help you prepare, perform, and recover. Personally, if energy products don't taste great, I won't eat them, and I bet you agree with me. That's why I love everything Honey Stinger offers because their products are delicious. You don't even realize you're getting fueled because it just tastes like you're eating dessert. And I have never met someone who doesn't love dessert any time of day. Discover what the buzz is all about on HoneyStinger.com. Get this. Use this code SSWSC podcast for 20% off organic waffles, chews, gels, bars, and hydration to help you sweeten the burn. I'm going to repeat that for you because it's such a great deal. Get going over to HoneyStinger.com and use the code SSWSC podcast for 20% off. And now back to the show. Hey, Luke, epilogue. Um, I had this this thought and I wanted to hit on it before we totally wrap. So thanks for coming back on stage. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> As if we're sitting on a stage, right. like doing this in front of a live audience. That'd be cool. We should do that. Um, so there are different kinds of athletes in the club. There are endurance athletes who are doing sports like Nordic, longer events. And then there are what I would call the adrenaline athletes who are like doing the biggest tricks they can on the half pipe or whatever. Do you use a different mental approach with these different types of athletes? There can be. Um, and there is. Yeah, it's um, a lot of the, you know, what we would maybe call general athletes like the slip style, you know, free ride athletes. A lot of that work is focused on overcoming fear. Um, generally once they start a routine or start a run, um, that fear subsides quite a bit, but it's kind of that leading up to it. So a lot of, um, work on imagery, a lot of work on, um, breathing and getting your mind to a space where you can stay committed to those cues and just acknowledging that that fear is there, not trying to suppress it. Just like, it's just kind of in the passenger seat with you, um, and it's a good thing. You know, it's it's telling you that, hey, this is important. There are certainly things that can happen and over the course of an athletic career will happen. Um, but just acknowledging that you can utilize, you know, you can utilize the benefits of fear. Um, with an endurance athlete, you know, and I would ask, I'm always curious in terms of like what endurance athletes think, you know, how they use their mind to overcome, you know, really it's often pain and suffering, right? So how do you kind of sit in that pain cave and whittle away at the wall and just be okay with it? Um, with cross-country athletes and with Nordic combined athletes, you know, the, the races are relatively short. Um, you're talking anywhere from, you know, a sprint, a couple minutes to, you know, maybe up to a 25, 30 minute race. Um, so there's a lot of suffering that can happen. And, you know, how do you how do you get those athletes to recognize that if they're in their body and they're just listening and they're just aware of those thoughts, they can do it for a while. They can stay with that pain for a while. But if they sort of, you know, give into that feeling of wanting to just give up and slow down, then, you know, they're obviously their performance sort of suffers. So a lot of self-talk, a lot of third person self-talk with those athletes is what the research suggests. So in, instead of like, oh man, this really sucks. I'm suffering. This hurts so bad. It's like, hey, you can do this. You got this a little while longer. You can stay here. You know, kind of talking to themselves in that third person can actually create a little bit of distance from the experience. Um, so that's one of the techniques we use with those athletes. But what kinds of things ha have worked for you in the past? Well, no, I just, I'm loving this conversation and I wish we did a whole podcast on it. We may have to come back to it. But it's this concept that all athletes need to live Find comfort in the discomfort, yeah. but it's in different ways for different amounts of time and at different right. levels. Like the adrenaline athletes 
are probably living at a very high level of discomfort right before they take off on whatever they're doing. And the endurance athletes have a little middle ground where it is so uncomfortable, but they have to live there for a while. But you cannot live at the highest level for that long. So you are constantly pushing up against your ceiling, right? And the world I lived in was like Ironman triathlons. We did it for 10 hours, you know? So yeah. obviously our, discom- our, our level of discomfort was much lower, but we had to sustain it much longer. Right. Interesting, right. huh? <laughs> yeah. No, and I think what you just said is spot on. And that's, you know, something that we talk a lot with the athletes about. It's like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's really kind of one of the hallmarks of someone who's mindset tough, an athlete that's mindset tough. You know, there's this idea that she's going to arrive someday at a race or a competition and it's going to feel like training or it's going to feel easy. And that's not the case. It's always going to feel terrible. And maybe not terrible, but it's always going to be uncomfortable. You know, you're going to have that underlying sort of un uneasiness. And the really good athletes are the ones that expect that, have a plan for it, and can sit with it. And let me tell you, every once in a career, there is a race that did not feel hard. And it's usually the best race of your life. And I say, hang it up right after that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because you may not ever get it again and don't ever expect it again. Um, I love all this training. I think it's amazing. We can use it both in sport and in life. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club Show presented by Honey Stinger. Check out the club's winter and summer programs at sswsc.org. If you have a special topic or guest you want featured, we'd love to hear from you. Now get out there and support, lead, or be a champion on or off the mountain.